You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Matt. I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. Hello and welcome back to the Evolution Exchange, a podcast where we discuss all things tech, leadership and product within the Australian tech community. So by popular demand, this is actually the second podcast I've done on this topic in particular, but today's topic is balancing creative freedom and innovation with corporate ambitions. To get things started, I think it'd be great to have our panelists introduce themselves. So David, I'll get you to kick things off. Hi, I'm the director. Of, I'm David Bacon, director of design at um, CINT Australia. <clears throat> I lead the design practice here. A whole bunch of design practitioners who are trying to weave humanity into technology. Awesome, thanks, for that, David. And Chez, pass it to you next. Hey everyone, um, thanks for having me, and thanks to Matt for organising this. My name is Chez Bukhari. I'm a senior engineering manager at Envato. I'm all about helping software engineering teams um, create products that hopefully delight customers. At times, that can be, uh, we know that in the industry, that can be a tough um, balancing act, but I've learned a lot in my time in the tech industry, and I'm excited to be here and share my insights with this uh, panel. Awesome. Thanks, that, Chez. And, and Ben? Yeah, thanks for having me, Matt. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Ben Ryan. I'm an engineering manager at Alessian. Uh, we, which we build products such as Jira and Confluence that you may use. Uh, I'm currently working on ecosystem platform. We're building a new platform called Forge that enables cloud apps to extend Alaskan products in new and innovative ways. I guess the key passion area for me is uh, helping my teams build amazing products and platforms for our customers. And also from a people's side, I really love organizing social catch-ups and activities for trying to get a stronger human connection with my team. Nice. Thanks, Ben and Emily. G'day guys, uh, my name's Emily Duncanson um, and thank you for the opportunity to be here, Matt, and um, I'm really looking forward to having a chat with all the other panellists. Uh, I am a senior product manager with Nutrien Ag Solutions. Uh, we've just launched our first digital experience, which I'm very proud of, um, to deliver, I guess, value to our um, to our farmers and our growers around the country. Um, I like working for Nutrien because um, I really want to help um solve some of the problems in our food systems um, and Nutrien's purpose um, here and all over the globe is is to feed our future. So, yeah, it's uh, exciting times. Awesome. Thanks, Ali, and thanks, everyone, for the introduction. So we'll go straight into the first question here, which is from David, with the question being, how do you get business buy-in for innovative ideas? So I'll get you to start things off, David. All right. Um, I guess my ideas around this are based on my many, many failures of trying to get it up. And I managed to identify there are four things which I got wrong. And when I get right, it helps sort of you know, shift the needle somewhat. The first one is this idea around building trust and spending credit. How do you get that credit that you can spend with the organisation? There's this wonderful thing called um, a concept in psychology called an idiosyncrasy credit. Um, and it, what it does, it describes the individual's capacity to um, acceptably deviate from the group expectations. So how can you as an individual step outside your swim lane and go into other areas, which is what innovation basically is. So it's about building that credit up where the business or the organisation allows you to do that. The other thing I found is really important, you've got to find accomplices and allies with it. 
you know, who are those informal supporters across the organisation that will buy into your idea and importantly provide you that air cover as you go do those slightly crazy and risky things. The other thing you've got to do, um, and I guess this speaks to my uh, my background in design, is experimentation early. Just experiment early, get some data, because data will bring win debates and will help shift people. When someone, all they're bringing to the table is their opinion, when you're bringing data, it gives you that sort of extra leverage. And the last one is just seize the moment. Not Now is not always the best time. It's amazing the number of ideas that think it's a great idea. And a year, two years might pass and then it opens up. So don't waste that idea if it's not the time is not right. You need a bit of time and you need a bit of luck. Awesome. Great start. Thanks for that, David. Uh, Shez, I'll get your thoughts on this one. Yeah, that, that was really interesting, David. Um, when you were talking, when you started that conversation, I, I went back in time and I think um, we probably, if you haven't, I, I guess you haven't lived unless you've been um, sent out of the room from uh, presenting your ideas to say, go back and work on it a little bit harder. So I think that's that's one. Um, from the scars I've, I've had working <laughs> over many years, um, is I think firstly, it's, it's, it may sound pretty basic, but identifying a pain problem that actually matters. Um, there's a lot of ideas, right? And I think your ability to curate them um, with the biggest impact to your, your diverse set of stakeholders matters. So identifying a pain pro a point first. And then, as you said, David, gathering uh, a data and a bit of a story behind it. Um, so data is, collection is obviously one, but actually stitching a story that, you know, it might be might be related to a customer pain point, might be related to a customer service pain point, which is an internal facing customer. So your your head of customer service or head of product might be at odds of what they want to work on, but trying to stitch that story with data where you can find a synergy between the two is uh, is my my tip. Another thing is, as you said, getting buy-in from others, uh, building a, a bit of a coalition of the willing, uh, willing um, and also people who can champion that idea on your behalf is always is always beneficial so maybe talking to the people before you go into a meeting outside of that just to sort of grease the wheels so to speak um and i agree with you testing and validating ideas before you go to the business with stakeholders is always marvelous if you can do a prototype or a proof of concept test and validate quickly either by doing a customer survey or building something quick and dirty uh, just to show them um, some people are visual, and if you can show them a visual demo of what your idea is, I think that 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 would be my um, my tip. Great, thanks, Shaz, uh, and Ben, your thoughts. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, so I think number one is you need a solid business case, um, and then second is probably very thick skin because uh, you're going to be told I know a lot. So <laughs> I've got a lot of scars from that one. Um, I think passion is a key thing as well. You have to really sell it, and people have to believe that you are the person or, or the team to deliver that innovative idea. Um, I guess from examples from Alassian, um, we have a company called, a program called Point A, uh, where you literally get to pitch your ideas uh, to the founders and that could become the next big product. Um, it's like everyone can watch it and they get totally grilled in that process. So uh, <laughs> they have to really, really be passionate, really, really have a good case around good, um, yeah, to actually get the push through. But if they are successful, they get funding and they get given a whole team to actually build out this program. Um, so some great pro products that come from that, uh, examples are Atlas and Compass, which have just been released from us. So yeah, that, that program does work. Uh, from a consulting days, uh, innovation wasn't really something we focused on, but you try to sell it in 
to uh, your your projects, which is an interesting concept. Um, but a good example was uh, we went to one big organization. Uh, they were heavily waterfall. They tried Scrum in the past. It failed big time. Uh, we saw that in with lots of like, proven track records showing we can do it. It took a gamble and it actually worked. We delivered on time. Uh, they're happy with the outcome. And we actually came back to them two years later and pretty much all the projects there were running agile. So it was actually good to see that innovation kicked off a, a whole new way of working for that company. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. And Emily? Thanks, Matt. I feel like I've got a bit of the raw end of the stick here, being the fourth, um, <laughs> being the fourth uh, answerer of questions. Um, but look, just echoing um, some of the themes that are coming through. I think you know my first answer was find sponsors, so find those people um, that that really do believe in in what your idea is or or the innovation that you're trying to create. Um, and again, um, echoing shares. Uh, with what is the problem you're actually trying to solve. Um, And just to sort of drive that home, I think if the problem that you're trying to solve with your innovation hits... hits the heartbeat of the organisation at the time, uh, that's when you'll you'll get real buy-in. What I mean by that is understand the appetite for risk and and what are the actual commercial drivers of the company at this point in time. So if you have an idea but it's a bit... Um, you know, it, it, it might, it's time might be in five years time. That's probably because the commercial drivers of the organization need to shift to actually get real value from that innovation. So I think, um, I think really understanding that and, and as a product person, I think I often come at things, um, from three lenses, you know, you've got desirability, feasibility, and viability. Um, but if you can actually bias viability in the timing of your innovation, innovative ideas, um, you, you will probably get more support um, that aligns with the corporate affairs. So an example of that um, in Nutrien is we had, we've had some really good ideas um, for, for products and services to launch um, in our initial go-to-market. Uh, one of them in particular that I was working on um, just did not have the commercial driver. So what happened was when we did experiment and we failed, and even though we had a failed fast culture, that idea didn't maintain traction um, to go to market because it did not have the commercial drivers behind it. It didn't have people in the organisation going, if we don't do this, we we won't we won't get as much value as we need. So the lesson there was we went sort of back to the drawing board, got the solid business case as Ben uh, described, and then that meant that the commercial impetus was there to keep that innovative idea going and get it out to market. And I think that's that's what you've really got to strike um, an understanding of to get your innovative ideas um, uh, sought after from all of the decision makers in the company. I, I love that. I really, really, I think that's, that's. I'm glad someone mentioned culture because I was waiting for someone to mention culture. And I think good on you, Emily. I think one thing that Ben said before really resonated with me. I think you sometimes in my career when I was working at NAB, it, I, I had the view that, ideas only come from very senior people or experienced people. I think you've got to have a culture where it's good ideas come from anywhere, any level of the organization. I think you, as job, your job as a leader is to create that culture where everyone feels comfortable um, bringing their ideas to a forum. I, I love the Shark Tank kind of like grilling, but not everyone can <laughs> is up for it. So I think you've got to create a culture where people feel comfortable. I love what Emily said about failing fast. I think we, we say that a lot, but we actually don't create cultures that allow that. 
Um, so if your ideas get, get up, uh, get sponsored and you put it into production or whatever live with customers and it doesn't get up, I think you've got to have a culture where people say, cool, it's, it didn't work out this time. You've got to have good, robust A-B testing or some validation that, yeah, we, we believe in our instrumentation. It's not, ge- it's not generating revenue because of X, Y, and Z. Fine. I think you can't get attached to the ideas, but you've got to get attached to the culture, which brings ideas to the surface. Then, you know, obviously get traction if they're worth it or kill them and allow people to continue on that path. I think really love that. Um, Awesome. Look, some great answers. I think we covered it uh, very well. So look, we'll move on to the second question, which is from you, Shez, being, is strategic alignment the missing ingredient in striking a balance between innovation and long-term company goals? So I'll get you to, to start us off with that one. Yeah, look, uh, it's a bit of a rhetorical question. Obviously, we, we, we know there's uh, finding the right balance between innovation and long-term company goals will require probably a multifaceted approach. But depending on the size of the organization, how do you ensure that people who are bringing the ideas are aligned with the strategic ambitions of the of the or the corporate goals? I, I have worked in organizations, as I said, now pretty big, 34,000 employees where, uh, you know, people working on the front line of the customers are really feeling the pinch of real pain points of the customers. However, your corporate goals might be to, you know, become more profitable in a different domain. So how do you how do you create that alignment? Um, it also depends on your project, product maturity and specific context your organization is working in. Are your leaders aligned with the corporate ambitions? How are they, how are they, how good are they communicating that corporate ambition in, in terms of tangible goals to the people to execute on? Are you allow, are you using OKRs? To basically cascade those down, what sort of culture you have around, um, you know, getting together quarterly or yearly and reflecting on them and saying, okay, we got this wrong and we got this right, let's double down on that. So I think it's a pretty big topic, but I I I have seen the power of when the leaders are aligned and there's a compelling vision and teams get behind that. Um, when I worked in financial crime, for example, it was seen as a as a compliance domain. You know, compliance is normally seen as a tick in the box. People don't really want to work in it. They want they want to work in the customer facing type stuff. But I found that we created a compelling vision because financial crime solves a lot of social problems like drug trafficking, people trafficking, um, slavery, you know, abuse, child, child abuse. So we created that human centric vision, and we we then had a team that got behind it and rallied behind it and created some amazing technology on open source that solved that solved a lot of the, uh, our, our, our problems. So I think that that's what I'm, I'm, I'm keen on hearing other people's thought on what, what they do. Yeah. Awesome. Ben, we'll get your thoughts next. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So this was a difficult one uh, to just try and get down into it. There's a lot you get down. So great question. Thank you. Uh, so when I was thinking about it, I think strategic alignment is definitely a crucial factor uh, in balancing long-term company goals. I guess when a company's strategy is aligned with its innovation initiatives, it can really help ensure the company is moving all in the right direction um, and yet really focusing on achieving long-term objectives. Because if you didn't have that, yeah, you'd have all over the place, right? You wouldn't, wouldn't initially hidden targets, et cetera. Um, I think also to balance that out, there's some other key factors we need to think of, such as leadership. So if leadership don't support innovation ideas, just like this is our strategic um, growth goals for doing this, we've got no time for innovation, then like you're dead in the water, right? Second is culture. I think this is probably the biggest component out of the three factors I'm thinking about. Um, if you don't have that big culture that has spends time on innovation and lets you actually think and get it done, then yeah, also innovation ideas are going to get killed. Uh, lastly, resource allocation. 
if a team is running 150% of the time, you have no time to sit back and breathe and actually say, you know what, that problem over there, that could be a big win for us. Or even like dead productivity for engineering squad. You have no time to sit and breathe and say, you know, we could spend two hours fixing that over there and that will save us weeks and weeks worth of work. Um, so I think those three factors definitely play an impact as well for strategy alignment. I think if you get them all aligned, uh, it sets up your company up for future wins in the future. Awesome. Thanks, Van. And Emily, to, to you next. That's all right. Mute will come off in a second. <laughs> you, you're on. Sorry. <laughs> you're um, on. <laughs> yeah, so I think strategic alignment to get a balance between innovation and long-term goals is just not easy. So I'm just going to preface my answer with that. Like I think if I think if that was if we could do that, we wouldn't be having this discussion, right? So I think um, you know I, I think a lot of companies are trying, um, and particularly uh, I've experienced in agriculture when we have things like digital that are kind of new uh, coming in. Th- this is a this is a challenge. For them, right? Because um, digital brings cultures like design cultures, innovative cultures, agile cultures that that, that um, the whole industry industry isn't used to. Um, and so, I guess uh, the thing that I have found to be a success with with strategic alignment um, to to get that balance is making sure that you have the the goal very clear and it be an outcome-based goal. So I know we've mentioned sort of OKRs, but OKRs as a concept is not always easy to get into an organisation that is not used to uh, that kind of way of um, structuring or thinking about themselves. So I think, um, you know, my, my point is have a clear goal but an uncertain path to get there, right? Because if you buy into the fact that innovation is like the tension between, you know, freedom and constraint, um, then what you want to do is set the direction uh, but then give everybody the ability to to hit the, the gas pedal in the way that they want to and when they want to. Um, and I think th- and just create some constraints around that, you know, you might have a speed limit, um, but ultimately they can choose when they're going to go and when they're not going to go. And I think that that will enable a bit more of a strategic alignment around what, what we're actually trying to achieve that, that brings about innovation um, in a way that's, that's safe uh, for everybody to participate in. So that's, uh, that's where my head's at with that one. Awesome. Thanks, Emily. And David? Um, when I saw this question, I was reminded of a quote by this, this novelist called Upton Sinclair, and he said, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding something. And I think it's, this is really important that we talk about um, you when you're trying to sell innovation or something different, it's in conflict to what they do and what their job is doing. You will struggle with it. And I remember going back to like, you know, way back when, you know, design systems were seen as like this innovative thing. I thought, oh, this would be a cool thing to do. It took me about a year, but I managed to actually link the design system to three of the six company long-term strategic goals. They crossed security and privacy. They crossed, um, you know, I guess technology. And they actually even worked with like marketing and corporate affairs. And it took that time to link with it. And suddenly they understood how I could help them achieve their goals. I was helping do their job. I was helping helping them achieve their salary goals. 
um, and working with it. So I guess that's one of the things you have to understand is that when you see these long-term goals, sometimes they just take time to work with it. Sometimes you have to modify and massage, massage your idea, but it is so much stronger if there is some way that you can use that sort of that Trojan horse strategy where you're like you're doing your little nug of an idea, burying it under this long-term thing um, and then sort of drifting along there. So I guess that's my take on it. Awesome. Thanks, David. Is there anything anyone wants to add in finally on this question? Yeah, I'll, I'll um, add to what David said. Um, I think he picked on a really good point. I think most of us, I'm not sure, but most of us classify uh, ourselves as, or I do anyway, as middle management, right? And I think middle management's job is to translate those sometimes ambiguous, vague sort of goals that are, you know, sent from the senior managers um, to to the to the masses, I guess. So, you know, if you've got a team of 50 engineers and 10 product people and design people, I think it's our job, and David really touched on a really good point, to actually make them meaningful for the people that are closest to the to the work. And I think that might be one of the ingredients in um, in achieving that strategic alignment so that you're, we're all rowing in the same direction. I think that's ultimately what we want to do, right? So there's always tension, um, as Emily said, with, um, with freedom and constraint. I love that. Um, you know, you got to put the speed limit. Um, so, yeah, really good point, David. Nice. Thanks for that, Chez. Look, I think we'll, we again, wrapped up very well. So we'll move on to the third question, which was from Ben, which is, is structured innovation time worth investing in? <clears throat> Examples of hackathons or innovation weeks. So Ben, I'll get you to start this one. All right, thanks. It comes down to, like, we had lots of debates internally. Um, should you invest in this? Is, is forced innovation the right way to go? Um, my personal feeling is yes. I think everyone comes up with ideas uh, during the work weeks, but they have no time to actually invest in it and actually explore that idea a bit further, right? Dig a little bit deeper. Is it actually uh, able to succeed and get what you're thinking it will do? Um, so at my current employer, uh, we heavily invest in both Shipits, which is a hackathon. Uh, we're actually doing one right at the moment. So everyone's busy at the moment, uh, jumping in. Engineers, uh, like legal, HR, like everyone across the business is coming up with new ways to push the company forward. It's quite exciting. And this afternoon, we'll come back and we'll actually vote and see who's deemed the winner. Um, so, yeah, it really helps push a focus on, I guess, certain problem areas. This is like development productivity, reliability, or building apps, et cetera. Um, and we also do innovation weeks. That's run every eight to 12 weeks, 13 different things run a different way. But, yeah, a week dedicated to fix something, right, in your team. So come up for air from your project work or your reliability work and actually focus on something that could help the team succeed. So, yeah, personally, I think it's, it's a great way of doing it. Um, as an engineering manager, I get very little time on the tools. This is actually my time to actually jump back into tools and actually try things out, which I love. Uh, so that's one of the highlights for, uh, during during the, the quarters. Um, so I've actually built uh, two apps, which actually won division prizes. So I was pretty happy. Like, yes, engineering managers can actually create software, which was good to show the team. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, actually, actually, from those two apps, I've actually, actually run and used Daily by Alassian. So I think for my day-to-day -day job, it really shows you the pain points and friction of running an app, which is what our customers do day to day. So um, it really helps me produce some beneficial outcomes from my, my job as well. So awesome. pass on to Emily. Yeah, thanks, Ben. I um, This is an interesting one for me because, as I was mentioning before, um, agriculture as a sector is, is fairly new um, to these types of uh processes, uh, particularly structured innovation. And <laughs> when, when um, you know, I think 
organizations are experimenting with innovation, the first thing that they can say that they want to do is sort of structured innovation because it makes sense, right? We'll just cap cap the time, you know, we'll do this thing called a hackathon and we'll get some we'll get some great outcomes and, you know, tick that box. So it can be a bit of a tick box exercise depending on where you're up to in your maturity of the organization. Um, however, that being said, I am also a proponent of um structuring time for thinking outside of the box and thinking not on what you're specifically doing um, in your day-to-day. And that, that I think, plays into the cultural aspect of creative freedom, um, giving people the ability to go outside of their lane um, and think about bigger and broader and more exciting things. Um, and I just think it's really, really good for exposing people to new techniques and tools. So it, it can actually be an upskilling opportunity too when you sanction that time away um, to do things. So, so yeah, I am a proponent. I think um, the the value of structured innovation heavily depends on um, the culture uh, that your organisation or team has. So I think um, I think we could. Uh, you know, there's probably instances, particularly if you have a team of people that are sort of very free and very innovative naturally, um, you know, you would question the value of sanctioning time, but that's not often the case. Um, You know, you're not often presented with high performers in all of their certain leagues. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely worth um, investing in uh, structured innovation. Thanks, Emily. Uh, David, what are your thoughts? Um, listening to, I guess, my colleagues here, it's interesting talking about structured innovation time because the we're talking a lot around, I guess, personal development. We talk about jumping back on the tools. It's good for teams. It's culture. And I think one of the things you have to understand, if you create this sort of structured time, why are you why are you doing it? Um, is it you know, to create some innovative thing or is it to help the team? Is it to help with the culture? It might be a marketing exercise, nothing wrong with that. But I think that's what you have to understand is what is the value this thing is identifying? Um, one of the things that she's talked earlier about problems that matter, one of the challenges you have with structured time, are they working on problems that matter to the business or are they working on problems that matter to themselves? And I think you just need to understand that, particularly if you're in a leadership position and say, well, what do we see as value for this? What do we want to do? And then try and do something accordingly. Because the problem we know with all these projects when people have different thoughts, you know, the, the people doing the innovation want to do one thing and then business wants to see something else. So I just need to make sure, I think you need to make sure that the goals and the outcome are aligned and you do that. And I think you know, it's brilliant if you do it. Uh, this idea you are talking before, Ben, about having like sort of, is it every eight weeks you have innovation week and stuff? That's brilliant, but you just need to be really clear. And again, making sure it aligns with one of those sort of, what are the business strategic alignments? What are they doing? And if it's around personal development, training development, it's culture, team building, whatever it is, make sure it's aligned to that. Or if it's around actually developing something that matters or reducing something, how do we help make something more efficient? Just make sure we call that out. Hey, thanks, that Ben and Chez. Um, really, really good points. And I think, look, um, what I, if I can summarize the discussion is, is one size does not fit all here. Um, I'm a very big fan of hackathons. In fact, um, my, my current team that I'm working on um, in Envato got restructured about six, seven months ago. And since then, we've been sort of trying to 
find new, new ways of working and just finding our feet and settling. There's been a lot of change. And we are running a hackathon in two weeks. And the idea came about the start of the year when I came back from holidays refreshed. And I thought, why aren't we running hackathons? Why, why, um, why not? Why, where's the innovation happening? And I think what Ben mentioned that engineering teams can fill their buckets up with a lot of work. And some, some of that work might be products, some of that is BAU maintenance, et cetera. Hackathons are not just, in my view, at Invato. We're not, I'm not running it for the sake of creating another commercial outcome. The first hackathon is just to, I guess, plant the seed that innovation should be part of our DNA. And I hate when people say that because it's a very fluffy statement. Uh, hey, you should be innovating every day. No, we well, we don't have time to innovate because we are churning our product or features, right? But I think setting a regular cadence, we've, we've, we've decided on a quarterly where people actually get to work on maybe their pet projects. Um, David made a good point that it's it should, it's not all about company goals. It could be a personal development goal. You might want to work with a person who's not in your team on an idea that you guys have been talking about over a beer or whatever, and it, it's allowing that time. One of the things we've been experimenting with is dynamic reteaming. So, you know, traditionally software teams have been fixed. Um, you know, Ben might have a team that's obviously his team and Chess might have a team that it's my team and then Emily is our product manager. And she's got a pro problem that sort of, um, you know, goes, spans the boundaries of our teams. So do we, do we create, you know, a, a common backlog? So what we've been experimenting with is bringing a group of people together with the, with the skills that Emily needs and getting, allowing them to work on that. So that's also, you don't have to do it in a structured way. You can also do it on a, in your day to day. So I think I, I what I want to say is, Big fan of hackathons, big fan of structured innovation, but it doesn't always have to be structure. Um, our job is also to find ways to support our people, their development, and also creating a, a culture where people don't feel confined to the boundaries of the org structure. Um, one thing I'll say, and don't hate me for, for saying this, I did, a, I did a course a long time ago. It was Safe Scrum. Yes, uh, controversial. But one, one I, I don't agree with all of it, but one really good idea in that was a concept of an innovation sprint. So basically, every fifth sprint is an innovation sprint. Now, it doesn't have to be every fifth sprint, but that structure I can align to. If the whole company believed in that, that every fifth sprint, we allow people to come together as cross-functional people and allow them to you know, work on ideas that either matter to the company goals or personal development or you know, creating a new tech stack to experiment on, I, I can get behind that. Right, thanks. Um, I'd just like to add to that that I think it's so fascinating um, thinking about David's points and Shed's what you've just mentioned because I think innovation, particularly creative freedom, is inherently messy, like nonlinear, you know, it's, it is iterative. So I think, you know, when, when we're talking about structured innovation, yeah, I, I just think we've got to think about that cadence and how it fits in with the current culture because, um the, you know, the, the the thing that you don't want to do is have people in your team going, oh, sorry, you've just got to wait until we get to the end of the quarter for that idea to, you know, flourish or, nope, sorry, that doesn't fit in our time frame. So, you know, I think it's, I think it's a balancing act when we when you're bringing instruction innovation, and I think because it is messy, because it is nonlinear. I, I agree with David. You really need to figure out what it is that you're shooting for, um, that the team needs, that everyone um, buys into. Awesome. 
Thanks, Naomi. And look, some great answers there. Uh, does anyone want to, to jump in there and add anything to that? I'll right, just well. add the stakeholders. Uh, I think, can you not hear me? I can. Sorry. I, from, from my sense, my, your screen was frozen. But go on. You're good now. You're good. You're good. <laughs> no, no, I just wanted to add that just um, always remembering the stakeholders as well because I think sometimes engineering teams can get really hooked on innovation because, it, you know, it's free time and do whatever time. And pet project time, I think you got to you got to be able to show tangible outcomes um, to get that sponsorship as well. So yeah, it's not just um, unicorns and you know I don't know kombucha. <laughs> Thanks, Shaz. And the last question, which is from Emily, we'll move on to now, being what kind of incentives should be in place to strike a balance between creative freedom, such innovation, and corporate affairs? So Emily, I'll pass it to you first. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, so I think um, the reason I asked this question is because we, if we're talking about striking a balance, then we need to incentivize that um, so that the generally the people in the organisation uh, buy into to having that. Um, and so I guess my um, my key kind of incentive that you would want to provide, I think everyone in the organization is is to value learning and a growth mindset. And I think we often, the way that we often describe this is the whole fail fast thing, which can be a bit of a can be a bit of a lip service to a, a deeper sort of concept that is that if we fail, we should the learnings is the actual value in that. And how do we use those learnings to improve in the next the next time? Um, and I think that learning um, creates curiosity if it's a safe place to do so. And I think it's curiosity that we really need to reward um, in lots of our people to create a, a balance between innovation, creative freedom and, and sort of corporate affairs or corporate ambitions. Um, and I think when people do um, think beyond their role and they show that they they might have ideas in other places or they might have skills um, in other areas of the organisation, they're rewarded for that accordingly too. You know, I think that we often hear, oh, I don't want to talk out of school or oh, I don't want to go outside of my lane. And I think um, that you need to have empathy, you need to have tact and you need to have skill to do that, to go outside of your lane. Um, but I think uh, that should be rewarded. Um, and, you know, I think uh, particularly because we're talking about corporates, you know, entrepreneurialism is not something that's either easy to pronounce or easy to achieve, but it is something that is, um, you know, if you can just find it um, and and be able to foster it. So uh, foster it in the people that have got those skills. Um, and when I, when I say that, I really mean, you know, um, if you are a senior leader or even a middle manager, you're you are providing a platform for that person to be um, entrepreneurial. Uh, then I think you will get more innovation and more curiosity um, in the organisation, and particularly in your team. Um, and and just to kind of wrap it up, I think we've we've talked about this a little bit, particularly with its with within our stakeholder engagement around this topic. And I think it's it's explaining to to people what's in it for me. Like if we are going to take on this culture um, of of being more innovative, of of having more creative freedom, what 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 is in it for me? How does that 
benefit me in my role in the organization and the organization as a whole. So they they are my answers for what kind of incentives need to be in place. I think I'm not going to specifically say, oh, you should, you know, um, increase people's remuneration or you should give them extra days off. I think that's completely up to the company. I think that's it within the context of the the industry and and the organization itself. But um but if you can find those things and and be able to um reward them when they occur and look for them, I think you'll be on the right path to uh to incentivizing that balance. Thanks, Emily. And David? Um, I think Emily's hit on a really key point here. Managing innovation within an organisation is different to managing products and services and BAU. You talked about earlier, innovation is about learning. We talk about in product delivery, we talk about teams velocity. If you talk about innovation, it should be about learning velocity. And one of the problems we have is I don't think corporate affairs or the business understand that difference. They're used to certainty, whereas innovation is around messiness. So it has to be managed differently. And I guess that's the big call out is the mindset of what are we trying to achieve? We just spoke earlier about you know, if we do hackathons, what's the outcome? What, what are we looking for? What's worthwhile our investing our time? It's very different. We're not just looking at output. I want to see three apps. It's like saying, I want to see this. So that I think that's the really um, important thing to sort of delineate and call out here. They are done, they are different beasts. They need to be managed and handled differently. And what works in one stream will not necessarily work in the other stream. Thanks, David. Shaz. Um, yeah, I think a couple of things that I'd like to add is I'm definitely not a fan of individual incentives. As uh, Emily said, I think putting um, a monetary carrot in front of people is, is not, I think, not sustainable. What, however, what I do believe in is like, for example, Envato is, is a is, um, profit share company. So when the, when the company makes profit, um, all employees get um, a share and part of that uh, profit is donated to charity. I, I think that's a fantastic concept. Um, it allows us autonomy to go after, you know, revenue generating ideas, but also do it in a way that is sustainable um, and, you know, not, not working crazy hours. Um, one tangible example of um, this question I can provide is, is from my time in financial crime, as I mentioned at NAB. Uh, traditionally, big banks and uh, financial organizations have gone out to vendors uh, and bought these multi-million dollar platforms that detect financial crime. And I was lucky enough to um, head up a technology team and the, the mandate from the chief technology officer back then was, um, we're going to pursue um, open source technology and things like that. So People who used to work on those platforms, the engineers and the, and the um, design product people, um, were energized by this concept of learning new skills, learning new, you know, new on open source technology, on, on data that was um, not vendor bound, et cetera. So I think, again, going back to the point, our, our job as, as leaders is to find those, uh, on the, those snippets of um, uh, innovation, um, create some momentum around it, create a culture where people people are incentivized on on um, either their personal development, being part of a great team. I think one thing maybe I'll mention is um, the incentive for innovation is is that it's a place place you want to work. Uh, you walk into a place, you walk into a team, and you can feel there's a buzz, there's energy, um, they're vocal, they're passionate about 
the problems they're solving. And that's, that's for me, is the incentive you create as a leader in a team. Um, balancing, balancing doing the work, but also finding time to learn and have fun. So, yeah. Thanks, Shez. And Ben? Yeah, last point, Shez, was great. Yeah, that really resonated with me. It's like exciting place to work because of the culture you built. So, awesome. Um, I found this one a little bit difficult. Uh, I think, as my team always tells me, it always depends. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, I guess the key is to have a shared goal of where like, the team, the division, the company should be heading. Uh, based on this, I think uh, individuals have some sort of guardrails they can follow. Uh, so not just going off really nearly and doing whatever they want. Uh, I think at the moment, as, as an example of what uh, we're doing here, sorry, uh, going incentives. So we're doing ship at the moment. Um, and basically they've given us 10 challenge areas. Um, some are relating to like you know, accessibility, trying to make a platform accessible, or it could be creating something new for a, a company called Compass. Um, from that, yeah, they've given us, if you win that prize, you get some sort of like headphones or gift cards or even donate to another company, right? So you don't have to do that, but there are challenge areas you could hone in on. So I think that's a good way uh, to give some sort of tangible incentive uh, to actually drive some sort of innovation in the area that you want, uh, but it's not forced on anyone, which I think I really like. Um, just touching on a point from Emily, you mentioned fail fast culture a few times, which I, I love. Uh, one of the examples is where a PM that spun up a new product recently uh, and gave, gave a great talk on how they uh, took that fail fast, uh, I guess, way of working. So they usually had said, we've got six months, we may not exist in six months, so what do we do? So they actually, instead of looking at the product as well, they looked at how they should work and they, they really flipped on like a lot of the cultures that we have here on their head. And like, for example, like instead of hiring a balanced engineering team, they literally got the best individuals they could hire and just grabbed them, right? Um, so very different to what we usually do culturally. And they had seven other examples of this, which I thought was a great way, just not only to focus on innovation as a product, but also innovation of how you deliver that product because you've only got six months on way. So what do you do? Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Any, is there any, anything else on this one in particular that anyone wants to add? Awesome. Well, I appreciate uh, that's that's our last question. So I thought I'll throw it one last time, see if there's any anything else anyone wants to add. As opposed to wrap up, I think all all, all questions were answered very thoroughly, and I think there's some great ideas in there. But is there anything else anyone wants to wrap up or, or jump in with just to finish us off? Um, if it's all right, I'll finish with a story um, which I think is kind of relevant, um, and it's about high jumping. Um, and, you know, for the last 100 years, you know, you could see through the, uh, up until about 1960, high jumping wasn't progressing very fast. It was, you know, I think people were managing to, uh, athletes were jumping about two metres um, and they would sort of, and one of the reasons for this was um, they would sort of, as they would jump over, they would do sort of like scissor kick and then they would sort of land in a sandpit. And then in the 1960s, it started to explode and it started going up. If you if you look at the, the world record, it actually sort of went up vertically. Like it just increased about 40 centimetres or 50 centimetres in the space of about, you know, 20 years. It was extraordinary watching it. Many people, if you sort of say, oh, why do you think it sort of increased in, in the 60s? They will talk about the Frosby flop. So I don't know if you remember it going through school, but it's the one where you run up and then you sort of turn it backwards and go headfirst over it. Um, and that was the technique that sort of everyone goes, oh, that's the reason it increased. So, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't the instigator for it. 
it actually was in the 1960s they introduced the safety mat. Those are the big mats that you can fall into. So suddenly people used to go, instead of having to jump and try and land feet first into sand, they could actually launch themselves backwards and head first. And for me, what we've been talking about today, a lot of it is around that safety mat. And as leaders of teams and in business and organisations, how do we help create that safety mat? So some, some lunatic in our team, some, some nutcase can say, hey, listen, I'm going to do this backwards and head first. And we can sit there and say, go for it. And let's see what happens. Thanks Love for that, it. David. <laughs> That's awesome. Look, I think that's a good way to wrap up. Well, thanks everyone uh, for jumping on the podcast. Thanks everyone for listening. Uh, again, I think we covered uh, a lot of different areas uh, and it was well covered and well thought out. So appreciate it. Um, and yeah, look forward to everyone listening and catch you next time on the Evolution Exchange. <laughs>